industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. Our speaker today is Dr. Jane Prosser, who is an emergency physician and toxicologist from the San Francisco Bay Area with a passion for poisons. She's the creator and host of the Pick Your Poison podcast, which is a fast-paced and interactive show with fascinating facts about toxins. And just a personal note, it's actually one of my favorites. I've been listening pretty consecutively uh, since it's been out. It's really good kind of as an attending toxicologist, as a learner toxicologist, and I think also as residents, because JP really does an amazing job of explaining the logic of figuring out a poisoning and how to manage it. Dr. JP is also published on topics including cocaine, methamphetamine, bath salts, fentanyl, sports supplements, and body packing of drugs for internal concealment. Her work has been recognized both nationally and internationally. And just again, a quick plug, check out Pick Your Poison. And with that, Dr. Prosser, I give you the mic. All right, so today I'm gonna to talk about what became known as the elixir of death and how it started the modern FDA. And so first, I just wanna start with a quote um, about this elixir of sulfonylamide disaster. This was the medicine that came to be known as the elixir of death. And this is from a physician who was involved in this disaster. So quote, but to realize that six human beings, all of them my patients, one of them my best friend are dead because they took medicine that I prescribed for them innocently I have known hours when death for me would be a welcome relief from this agony. And that was from Dr. A.S. Calhoun on October 22nd of 1937. So sulfonylamide was actually one of the first antibiotics. And in the 1920s and 30s, it was really a wonder drug. It, it started as an antimicrobial named Ponticil. And they didn't know at the time what the active ingredient was, but it was patented in 1909. And it was discovered as the antimicrobial properties of azo dyes were noted. And then later, um, they discovered that the active ingredient was, in fact, sulfonylamide. So just a quick interesting aside, actually, the first antibiotic use was methylene blue to treat malaria, which I did not know until I did the research for this talk. And sulfonylamide was such a wonder drug that this man, Gerhard Dogmack, in 1939, won the Nobel Prize in Medicine for his work on Prontosil. It saved thousands of lives, including the life of his own six-year-old daughter. So what happened in 1937 that this went from a wonder drug to being called the elixir of death and killing more than 100 Americans? What exactly happened and how did it lead to the development of the modern FDA? So let me tell you a little bit about the story. It started on October 11th in 1937. The president of the Tulsa, Oklahoma Medical Society was notified about six patients who died from renal failure after taking elixir of sulfonylamide. He telegraphed the AMA asking for the ingredients of the elixir, and the AMA responded they'd never heard of this before and never approved a liquid formulation. If you can see the screen, this is how it was prescribed, which I think is really interesting. It says dose, begin with two to three teaspoonfuls every four hours, and then decrease in 24 to 48 hours to one or two teaspoons and continue this dose until recovered, which is obviously not how we prescribe antibiotics these days. So the AMA then telegraphed Dr. Massengill of the Massengill Company requesting the composition. Massengill reluctantly released the formula requesting secrecy. He tried to suggest that the toxicity was caused by mixing the elixir with other drugs, and he admitted that no testing was performed on the elixir preparation. So the patients were having nausea and vomiting. They were having manifestations of renal failure, including anuria and flank pain, and then progressing to seizures, coma, and death. 
On postmortem exam, they showed hydropic tubular necrosis in the kidneys, which is we would now call vacuolar nephropathy. They showed evidence of liver degeneration. And the AMA's analysis, you know, first of all, they knew that all the patients had been exposed to the elixir manufactured by the Massengill Company. No one was getting sick from the sulfonylamide tablets that had been used for years. And the AMA lab determined that diethylene glycol was the toxic ingredient in the elixir. They found that it was 72% diethylene glycol, 10% sulfonylamide, and 15% water. There weren't any contaminants. There wasn't anything in there that wasn't supposed to be in there. There weren't any, you know, bacterial contaminants or anything like that. And they did know at the time that DEG was lethal in mice, and there had been a factory accident where five workers were killed after an industrial exposure to DEG. So there was no doubt once they determined the composition what the toxic ingredient was. So just bear with me because I'm going to go back and forth a little bit between what we know now in modern times about DEG and in 1937. So outbreaks of DEG poisoning have been recurring despite the known toxicity of this drug. They still occur. And despite occurring in modern times, our human data is unfortunately pretty limited as far as what we know. So like other toxic alcohols, DEG itself is non-toxic, and it's metabolized to diglycolic acid, DGA, which is thought to be the toxic metabolite. And also like toxic alcohols, it's metabolized via alcohol dehydrogenase in the liver. The toxicity of DGA is supported again by animal studies and by a single human ingestion of DGA, which showed that person showed similar symptoms to diethylene glycol ingestion. And we know, you know, that the clinical findings can range from intoxication to nausea and vomiting and abdominal pain to acute kidney injury, metabolic acidosis. And then the neurological findings are typically delayed at least 24 hours, but usually longer than 48 hours. And you can see cranial nerve palsies, peripheral extremity weakness, encephalopathy, and coma. So a very classic presentation that we've seen with many of these modern outbreaks would be a patient who presents with acute kidney injury and then several days later develops cranial nerve palsies and peripheral weakness. And then this would progress to encephalopathy, autonomic nervous system instability, coma, and of course, death. All right, so back now to 1937. So Massengill telegrammed the AMA requesting an antidote for his own drug. The AMA responded, quote, antidote for elixir of sulfonylamide Massengill not known. He, Massengill, then sent a thousand telegrams requesting the return of the elixir. He neglected to mention in this telegram its deadly effects. He just basically said, send it back. So now let's take a little aside to talk about the status of the Food and Drug Administration in 1937. So it had come into being in 1906 when the Pure Food and Drug Act was signed into law by Teddy Roosevelt. And this was largely in response to things like Upton Sinclair's The Jungle talking about contamination in the meat industry. It started under the Bureau of Chemistry, and in 1930, it was renamed the Food and Drug Administration. And essentially what it did was prohibited the misbranding and adulteration of food and drugs. So regarding food, it prohibited the interstate transport of food, which had been, quote, adulterated. It prohibited the addition of fillers and additives that were injurious to health. It prohibited coloring, concealing damage, or inferiority, and it prohibited the use of, quote, filthy, decomposed, or putrid substances. As far as drugs were concerned, the purity was defined by the U.S. Pharmacopoeia and National Formulary, and deviations were allowed but had to be stated on the label. And I'm highlighting this in red because elixirs are supposed to contain ethanol. 
and there was no ethanol in the elixir of sulfonilamide. So mislabeling in this case was the only reason the FDA was allowed to intervene. Had the label been correct, they could not have intervened despite the fact that the drug was causing all of these deaths, which is really kind of astonishing if you think about it. So what was the FDA response? Well, they were notified by a physician in New York on October 14th, and they immediately dispatched agents to the Massengill headquarters, which was in Bristol, Tennessee. There wasn't very much elixir of sulfonilamide there, though, because it had been sent out to suppliers and pharmacies. So they insisted on this second round of telegrams with the words imperative you take up immediately, all elixir sulfonilamide dispensed, product may be dangerous to life, return all stocks are expensed. They had the news media disseminate information. There were articles in newspapers, on the radio, telling people not to take the elixir, that it was deadly and dangerous. And there were some really remarkable heroic efforts to find each and every last bottle. The FDA combed through shipping records and sales slips to find where the elixir had been sent to. And in one location alone, they combed through 20,000 sales slips trying to find where the elixir had gone. They sent over 200 inspectors and chemists to investigate. They were assisted by physicians and local health agencies. And as I said, literally, they went to doctor's offices, pharmacies, and individual homes trying to find each bottle. Some of the stories are really, you know, interesting. There was a physician who postponed his wedding to find a three-year-old whose family had moved to the mountains after he'd prescribed the drug. There was a bottle that was tracked to the grave of a patient. In this place, the local custom was to place sick room meds and utensils on top of the grave. So somebody found the bottle sitting on top of the dead patient's grave. One woman told an inspector that she disposed of the bottle. Uh, the inspector was unsatisfied with this answer and found it outside her window unbroken and took it back to prevent animals or children from getting into it. And thanks to these efforts, 228 of 240 gallons was returned. And it's estimated that this saved 4,000 deaths, which is actually a pretty remarkable. As it was, 353 patients were exposed with 105 deaths. Of these, 34 were children, 71 were adults, making the case fatality rate 30%. So why did they put DEG into the sulfonilamide? Well, Massengill had recognized a demand for a liquid formulation, especially for children with strep throat. So his chief chemist, Harold Watkins, needed a diluent. So it was very difficult to get this sulfonilamide to dissolve in anything. So he came up with DEG and he made the elixir of sulfonilamide a raspberry flavored liquid preparation. So there was a trial after this um, and Massengill pleaded guilty to 112 counts of adulteration and misbranding. He was fined $26,100, about $500,000 in today's money. And this was the largest fine related to the 1906 law. And this quote that he said at the trial is just astonishing. My chemist and I deeply regret the fatal results, but there was no error in the manufacture of the product. We have been supplying a legitimate professional demand and not once could have foreseen the unlooked for results. I do not feel that there was any responsibility on our part. The chief chemist, Harold Watkins, committed suicide. So there was, of course, a legislative response after this disaster. And on December 1st in 1937, a bill was introduced into the Senate by Royal S. Copeland, who was a physician and also a former health commissioner of New York City. It was signed into law in 1938 under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. So this required manufacturers to show safety before shipment. It banned dangerous drugs like radium water, which was popular at the time. 
It banned false and misleading labels. It required disclosure of active ingredients, and it led to the need for prescriptions for dispensing of some drugs. It still, however, had a lot of limitations. As I said, proof of safety was required, but proof of efficacy was not required. There was no standardized approach to how this safety was shown, you know, regarding human and animal trials. And if the new drug application wasn't reviewed in 60 days by the FDA, then it was automatically approved. So this, of course, was not enough to cover everything, and we've continued to have legislation to update the powers of the FDA. A lot of these you'll see were in response to other disasters. So I've just chosen here to highlight a few. In 1962, the Keefe-Alver-Harris drug amendments to the act were passed. This is what required evidence of effectiveness in addition to safety. And also the FDA specifically had to improve the marketing application before a drug could be marketed. And this was in response to the thalidomide disaster. In 1982, the tamper-resistant packaging requirement law was passed in response to the contaminated Tylenol that was laced with cyanide. And similarly, in 1983, a law was passed to make it a crime to tamper with these packaged products. In 1993, MedWatch was launched by the FDA for post-marketing surveillance. And so despite all this, we've continued to have outbreaks of DEG. And I've just listed some of them here. If you're listening and you can't see, there's about 20 outbreaks that have occurred with DEG poisoning disasters since 1937. Many of these, unfortunately, are liquid Tylenol and cough syrup. So unfortunately, many of these deaths are pediatric deaths. And you can see that now most of them are unfortunately occurring in developing countries. So why is DEG used? Well, as I said, it is a good diluent. And sometimes this is done maliciously. In some cases, DEG is cheaper than glycerin, for example, which is a good diluent that's safe. And sometimes it's accidental where the manufacturer believed that they were using glycerin or something similar, but in fact, it was DEG. And you can, of course, see DEG poisoning via other routes of exposure. It's in antifreeze, which is a common place to find it. It's in sterno. It's also in fog machine solution. And so what is the toxic dose of DEG? Well, again, we have kind of a limited understanding here in humans. It's thought that less than 22 grams in adults is likely to be non-toxic. The toxic dose from an outbreak in Haiti was 1.5 grams per kilo, basically 100 grams in a normal-sized person. And this was similar to what the toxic dose uh, of elixir of sulfonilamide was estimated to be. So fortunately now, unlike in 1937, we do have treatment options. We can do NG lavage. The patient has to present within the first one to two hours after exposure. This recommendation is really based more on morbidity than any actual evidence that it helps. We could do activated charcoal again within the first hour or two. DEG has a strong diuretic effect, so volume repletion is going to be very important in all the patients. And then alcohol dehydrogenase, dehydrogenase inhibition, excuse me, like with other toxic alcohols. Bomepazole has certainly been shown to be useful. Alcohol probably works, um, although again, we don't have a lot of data uh, to support that. So if a patient arrived who was asymptomatic after exposure or potential exposure, we would observe them and do serial labs, again, similar to N-ethylene glycol exposure or methanol exposure. In this case, you would want to observe for 24 hours and check for any changes in acid-base status or renal function. If a person is symptomatic with acute kidney injury or acidosis, then you would definitely want to start from mepazole. 
And if they develop severe symptoms like a severe acidosis, oliguria, anuria, then in addition to famepazole, you would do emergent dialysis. As far as outcomes are concerned, the renal function, if you just develop an AKI, then we expect it to go to, to uh, go away and normal renal function should return. If the person has severe enough kidney injury to end up on dialysis, then that's going to be irreversible and they'll stay on dialysis. It's much more difficult to predict whether or not there will be any improvement in the neurological changes. The data is conflicting. The, the weight of the evidence does seem to suggest that there may be some improvement over time, although again, hard to know for sure. And I just wanted to highlight uh, this briefly. This is Frances Oldham Kelsey, because I think, you know, it's really fascinating. As a grad student, she actually worked on the FDA investigation on the elixir of sulfonilamide. She was accepted to grad school only because they thought Francis was a man. And she's also responsible for stopping the U.S. distribution of thalidomide. So she's really kind of one of the heroes of the FDA. And at the time, she was one of seven full-time investigators at the FDA. And her very first case application was that of thalidomide. She insisted on more data, including safety data to the fetus, despite a lot of pressure from the drug company to approve it. So thalidomide was in the U.S. It was distributed to about 20,000 patients under an investigational use, but it was never approved thanks to her. And we had only 10 cases of focomelia here versus about 10,000 cases in Europe. This is a picture of her with John F. Kennedy receiving awards for her work at the FDA to keep thalidomide from being approved. Now, the FDA, as you know, in modern time, has a lot of controversies surrounding it. Some people say approval is too slow, as in the case of HIV drugs. Others say approval is too expensive, that the oversight is not enough. In 2006, an Institute of Medicine report on pharmaceutical regulation in the U.S. found that the FDA had major deficiencies. They've been criticized for being too slow to withdrawal based on post-marketing surveillance data, like as in the case of rofecoxib or Vioxx. They're criticized for allowing additives like antibiotics and growth hormone and food coloring. So a lot of people have strong opinions about the FDA and what should be done differently. But I will say this, the U.S. isn't on the list of the EG outbreaks since 1937. And unlike many developing countries, we haven't had recurrent outbreaks of toxins in food and medicine. And we don't have a big problem with contaminated and counterfeit medicine. So the laws do work at least to some degree.